is oh. so is fuck off the table, but shit okay or like you know. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not planning on saying. <laughs> Hasn't really come up before. <laughs> <laughs> I have a bit of a potty mouth, so yeah. Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we chat to a different scientist and go behind the scenes of scientific discovery. I'm your host James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by evolutionary biologist, parasitologist, and deviant artist Dr. Tommy Leung. Hi everyone, uh, it's Tommy. You know, you already introdu- introduced me, so uh, some of you already know me on the Twitter and the social media. I'm, I'm the PZark. I mostly tweet about parasite stuff, and every now and then some random anime stuff pops up. So, yeah, most people will probably who know me in that capacity already know me from there. The academic people might know me about from the papers I publish about parasites. But uh, yeah, other people know me from the stuff that I do on uh, social media. Can I ask uh, about the Twitter handle? Uh, it actually came from a novel by a science fiction author called uh, David Brin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people might know him better for writing the novel that ended up being that film, The Postman. Okay. And he wrote a series of novel called uh, it was called Uplift Trilogy, and. It's kind of the space opera science fiction. So basically, human beings went out in space and found out that, oh shit, the universe is full of like all these intelligent species already. And the other thing that human beings have been doing is that we've been genetically modifying dolphins and chimps <laughs> so that they become part of like our civilization as well. So we've been doing this thing, and when we go out to the universe, and then we find out, oh my god, all these alien species have been doing this for like millions and millions of years they've been like there's this whole hierarchy this chain of different species modifying different species to become sapien and stuff like that and we were like just a little tiny you know little weakling that just came along and then all these other species come along and go what how could a intelligent species come along that have never been like uplifted so we were like this orphan species and some of them are like religious fanatics and they're like no this is heretical they must be exterminated others were like trying to take us into their wings and stuff and they all have their motives the pisiarg was actually a relatively minor part of the second novel called star tide rising so there's this uh, species called the Tandus, and they look kind of like a cross between praying mantis and centipedes. So they're as nightmarish as, as you might imagine. And so they've uplifted different species, but they're not entirely ethical with the way that they uplift species. So instead of making them like, you know, fully functional citizen of the galactic society, they turn them into these weird beings with special powers. <laughs> and so one of them, and they use this for the space travel. It's called the Pisiarch. And the Pisiarch is this animal that has the power to basically alter the fabric of reality. And that's how they get f- past the whole, you know, light travel limit. So mm-hmm. part of the feature of this particular novel series is that different species use different ways to bypass the speed limit, you know, warp drives and hyperdrive and all that science fiction-y stuff. The Tandu use the Pisiarch to basically rip a hole in reality to spill out to another place. And so these, um, the Pisiak is this kind of, you know, has these special psychic power that allows them to basically change the shape of reality. <laughs> and so I used the Pisiak because I initially went on to 
Twitter to tweet more about art, but kind of as a side thing. Oh yeah, by the way, I'm a scientist, but mostly about art.、Mm. And the way that I see my art is like, well, this is like I, I kind of. You know, represent an alternative version of reality, hence the Pizarc. And I really like that novel series. It was like a very kind of formative part of my upbringing and stuff like that. So、uh, yeah, hence the name, the Pizarc. So, at what point did you become a scientist online as opposed to an artist? Well,、um, I guess they all kind of go hand in hand. I really can't separate the two. So, I guess my kind of persona that I put on on Twitter, which is still part of myself, you know,、um, is that I'm into art.、Uh, I just so happen to also be a scientist.、Mm. Um, and the other thing I was doing online was writing a full blog called Parasite of the Day. So the way that got started. Was that back in 2010,、um, Professor Susan Perkins over at the Natural History Museum、uh, to celebrate the UN Year of Biodiversity? She decided to start a blog called Parasite of the Day, where she features the biodiversity of parasites and、mm-hmm. features different species of parasites each day. And I had a look at the blog, and she sent out an email to a whole bunch of people saying, "Hey, if you want to contribute,、um, feel free to do so." And so I did.、Mm-hmm. And so, because I was like really, really super enthusiastic about parasites, like the, the, you know, you have parasitologists who want to study parasites, and then you have someone like me who's basically like a, a, a nerd fanboy for parasites. <laughs> I'm like what you would call I'm like a parasite otaku. So I'm like super <laughs> into them in a way that some people might find really unhealthy. <laughs> <laughs> But like,、um, I was really into parasites, so I know about like parasites. I love reading. Like, I, I read up on parasites the way people read about like celebrity or their favorite TV shows and stuff, <laughs> like, or, or Trekkies into Star Trek trivia and stuff like that. So I know all this stuff about parasites. I go, hey, I can write entries for your blog. So I end up contributing quite a few posts throughout the year, and then at the end of the year.、Um, Susan was like, "Oh, you know, not sure what to do about this blog and stuff like that." I go, "Well, I'll keep it going."、Mm-hmm. Um, so I still kept on writing posts. It wasn't like one a day because holy crap, you know. But like, <laughs> I, I still regularly, if I come across new papers, I wrote about them, and、uh, it eventually became kind of my my blog because I was more or less the only one who was writing for it.、Mm-hmm. So it turned into a thing where it was just like you know, just a short little paragraph about parasite. It turned into a thing where I almost—it's as if I was reporting on new papers about、mm-hmm. parasites. So I come across a new paper that I find really, really interesting, and for like, oh, I'll write a summary about it in a way that people find, you know, general audience find interesting and understandable.、Uh, so that's kind of what it almost turned into, and I kind of go out of my way to. Feature only papers that aren't in, you know, the so-called glamour journals、mm. like Nature and Science and stuff like that. Because if a paper get published in one of those journals, you know that like Carl Zimmer, Ed Yong, and all the big science writers、mm. will be on it right away. So what can I possibly contribute to this whole conversation? So I find papers that、um, I wouldn't say I go out of my way to find them. They're papers that I come across just as my usual、mm. literature browse. So I find them and go, oh, this is really interesting. And over the years, I developed kind of a sense for like, okay, this this has a nice hook to it. This, you know, there's a component to this particular paper that will really grab people's attention. So after a while, now when I look at a paper, if I come across a paper that I go, I immediately have this instinctive sense like, okay, this would make a really good blog post.、Mm-hmm. If I could able to summarize the content and the more important bit of the paper in like. 
four sentences and then just build everything around the blog post. So that's the other thing that people know me from. Uh, and then um, after a while, I guess I never really separated that side of me from the artistic side of me. So it's not like as, as if I set up my Twitter account and decided only tweet about art. I always also acknowledge that um, you know, I'm a scientist. And before I was on Twitter, I was on this other social media platform called Google Plus, which, mm. you know, it still exists, you guys. <laughs> um, really? I don't know. Uh, it's not very, well, I don't really do much on there anymore, except like when I write a new blog post because I do have an audience there, I post it on there and that's mm-hmm. it. I don't interact or anything on there. But I, I already had that. So when I move on to Twitter and I told people there, it's like, okay, I'm moving on to Twitter a lot more now. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing more stuff there. And uh, basically, uh, Twitter, it's kind of like, I guess if you look at my Twitter profile, it's kind of like a snapshot of my personality. You get kind of a good sense of like what I'm into and stuff like that. And uh, I don't really think that, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, you know, when you're on social media, you put on a persona, you know, and sometimes people use that as a way to get away with doing shitty things it's like no 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 it has to come from somewhere you know Mm. it might not be like a complete picture of who you are it might only represent one particular aspect of you but it is still an aspect of you that you know you see on social media the way that you behave Mm. and stuff like that so basically when you see me on my twitter account it's almost like as if you take a dip into my stream of consciousness <laughs> and uh, I go, oh, what's he into now? Oh, what? He just tweeted about some random mobile game that he found that's about Cambrian animals. Okay. Um, <laughs> and that's actually, you know, my Twitter stream is pretty much that. It's just like all the stuff that's going through my head and then one one thing that pop up, go, oh yeah, this is worth tweeting about and just send it out there. So if you can kind of like, it's kind of a condensed version of like, oh, what went through Tommy's mind on that day? <laughs> so you're so, always connected into Twitter. Um, and I kind of dip in and out because of the state of the world now. Yeah. A lot of the people that I follow <laughs> tweet about politics and like I, I recognize that it's really important and stuff like that. But that shit really gets you down. <laughs> so I try to like, okay, well, I'm just going to tweet something out there and then move away, do my own thing for a while and then check in on it. Oh, it's lunchtime. Well, I'm having lunch, check in on it every mm. now and then. So... And that's kind of the best way to use Twitter for people who don't really understand it. Don't try to like just look at the stream all the time because, you know, your eyes will bleed. Uh, you just kind of <laughs> check in on it every now and then and see, you know, what's going on and if anything grabs your interest. And Twitter's been doing some really weird thing with its algorithm anyway. So if you miss something, it might come back mm. for better or worse. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. When I first joined, it freaked me out a bit. Yeah. And it was... Someone tried to reassure me that it's a bit like... Standing under a waterfall. Yeah. Every now and again, you just go in there, stand under the waterfall, and then you leave. You can't possibly catch every yeah. drop. No, like that's. <laughs> the, I think that's the obstacle that some people got. They they think like they have to read everything. Mm. They go no 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 don't read everything because you go mad. <laughs> like your, the human brain cannot contain like all that stuff. Especially like like I said, a lot of the stuff is like about politics. And a lot of the scientists that I follow now have become more political because in America and because of the state of America at the moment so it's perfectly understandable that they do so Mm. but it's just like you know I don't want to be immersed in that kind of shit 
all the time. <laughs> it's terrible. I know it's terrible. I don't need to be constantly reminded. I'll check the news for that. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, you dip in and out. There's different ways that you kind of curate your timeline and feed so mm-hmm. that you can see the kind of stuff that you w- want to see and not see too much other stuff as well. Mm. Um, so it's just a matter of like getting used to the environment of Twitter that is, I guess, for a lot of people, it's like kind of very counterintuitive to mm. the way that they interact with media. I mean, lots of people, lots of scientists on Twitter at least feel that they have to have a very professional online persona. <laughs> so it's quite refreshing to hear you talk about the fact that you can't oh, just man. be a person. Yeah, I don't know. Like, because I... Um, I, I I guess because now that I'm in a position where I can afford, like I I I feel that I'm relatively reckless on Twitter. Yeah. Not that I do anything <laughs> really bad. I don't like tweet like lewd stuff or anything like that. It's just that the way that I tweet, um, I, it doesn't like people will often people who follow me or st- only started following me recently, only been on my stream for like a few months. They often don't know who I am, mm. really. Like, um, there's people who have all kinds of ideas. Like, some of them think that I'm actually in the US when I'm not. Mm. Um, some of them don't even really realize that I'm a scientist until mm. I post some sciencey stuff. Um, there's some people who, um, one of the strangest things to have happened is, so people know me from my blog, and then they know from my blog that, I draw these Parasite Monster Girls mm. and then they from the Parasite Monster Girls find out about my actual scientific peer review papers. <laughs> That's one of the like, you know, if you talk about outmetrics and stuff like that, mm. that is like a weird story. It's like, <laughs> let me tell you about how my Parasite Monster Girl led people to read about my academic papers. <laughs> so... Yeah, I have like, so the way that I tweet doesn't really come across as like a sign. It might not seem as professional, but I think people find it more like relatable. Mm. Like, oh, he's like a person, a kind of quirky person, but like a person that might be interesting to see what he has to Mm. tweet or say. So, yeah. I mean, I think it actually came up in the last podcast I recorded that scientists generally are pretty... um, prolific creative people as well yeah I mean you have to be in this kind of profession and hence the whole like you know the whole science and art thing I actually see a lot of parallels even mm. though a lot of people think like, oh they're completely distinct disciplines it's like no there's actually like quite a lot of overlap in the process like when I do a piece of art uh, and when I conduct a study or like writing up an experimental design uh, there's a lot of parallels in the process and the thinking uh, that is involved in terms of like creativity and planning and stuff like that. Mm. And a lot of like a lot of artists, um, they do like a lot of research for mm. their particular talk. Like a lot of the stuff that I draw now, they may appear superficially very silly, uh, but you don't see the stack of papers that I read <laughs> to get to that <laughs> stage. It's like wow, that's a lot of effort to go through to draw something that seemed very silly but uh, at the same time um, a lot of the other artists are like that they do a lot of research mm. uh, probably a lot more than you know people give them credit for mm. um, they don't necessarily talk about it but it's in the art itself it's like built into it and if you know what to look for you can see like oh someone 
has or has not put in a lot of like research effort into mm-hmm. the topic. And this is especially the case with a lot of the artists I follow are paleo artists. So they do reconstructions of um, prehistoric animals, mm-hmm. and you can see different styles as well. And you can see where they're coming from and how they, you know, how and why they do what they do. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, um, a lot of artists uh, for all the scientists out there who might be listening, um, you should give artists a lot more credit than you might, you know, because I know some STEM people think that artists just kind of sit around and get high and then throw paint on a wall and then call it a day. It's like, no, that's not what an artist do at all. Artists uh, are professionals as well, yeah. uh, as, as much as like scientists are. And I don't think artists would view the lazy hippie people as artists either. Yeah, no, I, I, don't, just... I think yeah, those are just people who just go, I'm an artist. Uh, yeah. they, they just use that as an excuse to... So for scientists out there who might feel under pressure to, to put forward a very professional persona, and, and I guess I'm kind of one of them, would you recommend that there are... You just go for it, put your art out there, be... I mean, um, it's kind of whatever that you're comfortable with. I try to avoid giving people advice simply because a lot of the things that happen to me are due to some very specific circumstances, due to things that happen around me as well as just aspect of my personality as well. Mm. So I would actually advise like just do whatever that you're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. If you're comfortable being like professional and stuff like that, do that. Um, I know like how my followers are like I have a general idea of how my followers are like I have a general idea of like what the internet is like and I could in a safe way put forward my persona without you know having you know running into any trouble you know mm. I don't put anything out there <clears throat> excuse me that could be considered as um, really uh, offensive like I, I don't I don't project like a ha- any hateful attitude mm. towards people, and like you know, some people I've come across scientists that manage to have like a very professional persona, and yet at the same time tweet something that you go, Ooh, <laughs> why? Like, oh, really? Like, don't, that's a really bad attitude to have. Mm. Um, so it's not even so much about like what kind of front that you put on, whether it's like a professional front or more casual front. It's more in the content of what you tweet and mm. whether like, you thought about it. And, and also with like Twitter, and this would be an advice just to anyone, um, some people more than others, is like, just keep in mind when you tweet out something, it's going to be out there. Mm. Um, you know, maybe like you go, you, you kind of regret it a minute later and decide to delete it. Maybe if you don't have a lot of followers, no one caught it. Uh, but, you know, once it's out there, someone could come along and screenshot it, and then that's forever. It's on the internet. Mm. So um, just kind of keep that in mind. Once you put it out there, it's in public. So anything that you're comfortable saying in public, then you can, you know, if you go to the town, town square and go yell out this thing, mm. if you're okay with that, then sure, by all means do that. Um, which goes to show what I'm okay with saying, <laughs> considering all the stuff that well, I do. I mean, you mentioned just in passing that the position you have at the moment gives you sort of freedom yes. to be yourself. Is that simply because you have job security? Yeah. Is that what it comes yeah. down to? Um, part of it is, is that as well. Um, I mean, I can't that's why I don't want to give people any advice about mm. like how to be or not be casual. Some people might want to moderate 
their persona on the internet simply、mm. because you know they might not be in as a secure job position.、Uh, they might be at a place that、uh, you know might frown upon being too casual and stuff like that.、Mm. So once again, it comes back down to like whatever that you're comfortable with.、Um, I don't want to you know I don't want to give go yeah just go wild or whatever and then someone end up losing the job over it. <laughs>、um, but at the same time, you kind of have to consider like you know. Should I really put that out there? You know, if I have like really, you know, an opinion that could be considered as,、um, you know, like racist or sexist or whatever, you might want to have some introspection and go like, okay, why do I have this attitude and why do I want to put it out there?、Um, <laughs> And at the same time,、um, you know, people get offended by like different things as well. It's from my experience, it's practically impossible to not offend anyone ever. Mm. Um, simply because you know some people kind of take it the wrong way,、um, and sometimes with some people with the way politics are going,、uh, it's maybe like it's not a bad thing for those people to get offended by you know whatever,、um, <laughs> especially if you're like, hey, I you know I support you know same-sex marriage. I think you know transgender people are okay and stuff like that. And sometimes people get really offended by the idea. Of you supporting the LGBT community,、uh, and so if if those people get offended by that, then you know, good, because you know,、mm-hmm. they're bigots. So <laughs>、uh, yeah, you kind of have to moderate your own kind of, you know, how what you want to put out there,、mm. you know, and basically the whole thing, you know, people go, "Oh,、uh, free speech, free speech."、Um, Free speech also have consequences as well.、Mm-hmm. So if you're prepared to put something out there, you have to be prepared to receive what, however people might take it.、Um, that's kind of the double-edged sword of、yeah. free speech. It's not like you can say whatever you want at whoever you want, whenever you want, kind of a thing. Yeah, I think it's my favorite. It's a Paul Manningly quote: "You have the right to be offended, but you don't have the right not to be offended." Yeah, yeah, kind of. Along that line,、mm. there are some things that, like you know, I draw a line at and go, well, okay, well, people obviously, you know, if it's something racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic or whatever,、uh, I kind of draw a line. And go, yeah, okay, well, you know, it's yes, you should be offended by those things, you know, because those are bad, you know, bad, hateful, bigoted attitude.、Mm. Um, but if there are other things that are kind of more gray, then you know.、Um, It's kind of up to you on an individual basis and what you're willing to put out there and what you're willing to well put up with.、Mm. That goes hand in hand. What you put out there and what you put up with as well. So as scientists, I mean, as students are told now, you need to be on Twitter, you need to be on LinkedIn, you need to be on all this stuff. Yeah.、And、um. I mean, I don't know. Like, in terms of like Twitter, I don't know how useful it is for like in terms of job search because the way that You know, Twitter get told to people, which is like, oh, this is a microblogging site to put your stuff out there.、Mm-hmm. Actually, from experience, it seems more like a useful networking slash performance art tool. <laughs>、um, there is like a very big performative component to how Twitter works and stuff like that, and you can see it from like, you know, what gets retweeted and what account get followed a lot. Um, so there is like a kind of performative aspect. So if you are someone who are into theatrics and stuff、mm. like that, Twitter might be an interesting kind of a platform for you to try out different things. I know that comedian, you know, 
it, they they treat it almost as kind of the the joke laboratory, mm. see what works and you know stuff like that. Uh, but um, in terms of you know these kind of social media network, uh, LinkedIn, I find it's not as useful for at least academic scientists. Mm. Um, other professions might find LinkedIn useful. Uh, there is other sites like ResearchGate and I think Academia.au.edu uh, .edu is um, might be useful as well. Um, but yeah, um, Twitter is Twitter is a strange place. I mean, uh, having your persona online and appealing to a broad yeah. audience surely has benefited your scientific. Uh, I definitely profile. think so because yeah, uh, yeah I, I think it was through writing my blog and through being out there on Twitter that people actually, for someone at my career stage. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, I know many other fellow ecologists, parasite ecologists, parasite evolution biologists who are at a similar career stage who might not get as much, I guess, opportunity to interact with media as I would hmm. um, simply because I put stuff out there and people see my stuff and they recognize me. Oh, yeah, he's the, he's the parasite guy. He's hmm. the guy who tweets and go mad over parasite stuff. You know, let's get his take or get his hot <laughs> take on this. Um, but I... Um, but yeah, uh, that benefits, but you know, it also comes with like, you know, consequences as well. You have to deal with like, you know, all the drama associated with like internet mm-hmm. and social media. And depending on your personality, that might not be something you're into. So, uh, once again, it comes back down to like your own personal choice of like, mm-hmm. what are you, you know, what are you into, what you're not. Um, you know, there is a huge performative aspect with Twitter and stuff like that, and interaction, engagement. Most of the tweet that you see come up on my timeline are not necessarily representative of the number of tweets that I tweet. Like some of them are just back and forth conversations with people, mm. building rapport from people that I know. Like most of them are artists. I think I probably interact more with artists than scientists simply mm. because, you know, like I said, you know, a lot of scientists feel the need to put on this professional front. So it's more difficult to have like a casual chat with them just about you know shooting the breeze about things whereas with artists because we're all creative and weird people we can like get really nerdy about weird things that other people might not understand you know and I think that's something that scientists and artists share in common as well that we we nerd out over things that other people look at going what are you guys going on about yeah we're going gaga over the, oh my god this is so <laughs> Speaking terminology that no one understands. So, yeah. <laughs> well, for you, it's, it's parasites. What is it about parasites that makes you such a fanboy? Oh, well, because uh, they're freaking awesome. <laughs> like, there's something like, uh, like for one thing, um, parasite gives me kind of an opportunity to uh, look at a variety of different organisms mm. simply because uh, parasites is a lifestyle which has independently evolved in many different groups of organisms mm. so I can like you know read about um, uh, some kind of fungus and then read about some kind of uh, like a fluke uh, or some kind of a plant and they're all parasites they're all united by the fact that they're parasitic and um, and they all have really interesting adaptations many people think of parasites as being these kind of uh, degenerates of evolution when it's actually really quite the other way around because they have gone down this path to leave a lifestyle that's very different and very alien to us even though it's very common 
um, they have these very specialized adaptation to bypass all the sophisticated defensive mechanism that the hosts have. So in that way, they're like really, really interesting. The I guess the the main formative thing that got me into Parasite would have been when I was an undergrad. I read a lot of um, popular science books, all、mm. kinds of popular science books. I was just like hoovering them up, and one of the books that I read that really left the mark was、um, by Carl Zimmer called Parasite Rex. So I read that round about in third year.、Uh, my undergraduate training, by the way. Uh, barely talked about parasites. I think it was mentioned in passing at one point. Like there's these things, they're parasites, whatever. Let's move on.、Um, and I read Carl Zimmer's book, and I go, "Oh my god, parasites are amazing!" I went from saying, thinking that, "Oh, they're kind of gross and kind of interesting in a way," to, "Oh, they're awesome! I want to read everything about them." <laughs> so I basically,、um, you know, because I have university access, went to the library, looked up journals, looked up. Basically everything I could read about parasites. So in the period of like towards the end of my undergrad and when I went to New Zealand to do my honors research, I just self-taught myself like everything about parasites that I didn't get to learn about in undergraduate. <laughs> and it's quite interesting because I didn't learn anything about you know parasites as an undergraduate. And then I basically self-taught everything I know now about parasites, and now I have all kinds of people asking me about parasite stuff because I'm just <laughs> such a big nerd boy over parasites. I mean, saying you're a parasitologist is may as well say you're a zoologist, right? Because they are, or even incredibly just, diverse, yeah, and or even not just a zoologist, because like I said, there are like、uh, yeah, of course, and, yeah. I'm just a guy who's super into a like. Any organisms that lead that particular lifestyle, whether you're like talking about viruses or bacteria or fungi or plants or animals that have that particular lifestyle,、mm. it's like if they infect the thing or live on another thing or in another thing, I, I'm I'm up for looking into <laughs> looking at them. I mean, is it frustrating that they are immediately classified as gross or evil?、Um, it is kind of frustrating. That's why,、uh, like, and I and I see that sometimes with the way that. You know the media portrays them, and even from like well-meaning scientists who are trying to get people interested, they present it from that kind of gross angle.、Mm. Whereas I don't quite present them from the gross angle, but、I、present them as like fascinating, but at the same time a little bit creepy and nightmarish. Because to be honest, like some of the things that they do are kind of creepy and nightmarish <laughs> from our perspective. I, if I look at things from their perspective, it's like, oh yeah, that's perfectly understandable why they、mm. would do this. So, for example, I recently wrote a blog post about a fungus、uh, that does the kind of the zombie ant fungus thing,、uh, but they do it to a beetle, and they get the beetle to fly to a daisy and bite onto the daisy because other beetles of the same species often、um, go to the daisy to feed on nectar. And after they kill the beetle, they actually the fungal growth go into the body of the beetle in such a way that it、uh, opens up their wings. So they、oh. turn the beetle into this kind of like chitinous marionette puppet that the fungus <laughs> are kind of manipulating and like pulling its wings and making the wings flare out as if it's alive when the beetle is just dead. So the fungus has sort of infected the beetle and got into its. Into its neuro yeah, biology it's somehow probably, is affecting yeah, her behaviors. It's、behaves. probably doing something like that. It's、mm. probably secreting some things that induce a certain kind of behavior. Get the beetle to latch onto the flower and then kills the beetle、uh, simply because the beetle just become like half fungus at that point. All the fungal tissue had invaded its body, and then it invades the body in such a way so that it actually. 
pulls on the ligament and the muscles of the wings so that the wings would actually open up. The mm-hmm. wing covers open up, the wings come out, and apparently um, the, the fungus, uh, the fungal spore that comes out on the abdomen of the beetle, and apparently that's supposed to make the beetle more attractive. So other beetles come along, you know, they, they, they come to these flowers, kind of, I describe in my blog post as being kind of like pubs or cafe for beetles. That <laughs> it's a place that they come to, like, have a drink and socialize. Mm. So they see this beetle and go, oh, that's a, hey, that's a sexy looking beetle. And they rub themselves <laughs> up against them and they get infected with the fungus. And that is kind of like a general snapshot of the thing that fascinates me about parasites, that they are able to do these things to the host mm. and um and some of them i do find like genuinely cute you know i like you know for example the tongue bite parasite people get grossed out by the tongue bite parasite but you, you look at it it's kind of cute it's got this kind of little body and it just for listeners and, can you explain what the tongue bite okay, parasite is the tongue bite parasite is a, a parasitic isopod so if you guys know anything about like roly polies or slaters mm-hmm. in the backyard, or some of you might have seen videos of those uh, big deep sea isopods, so they're in that particular group of crustaceans. Mm-hmm. Uh, so some of these guys have evolved to become parasitic. So there's this family called the Simophoids, which are parasitic mostly on fishes. And most people see, like, the one that they know about is a tongue bite parasite. So it's this uh, isopod that's probably about, you know, the size of your thumb, and it lives inside the mouth of a fish. Mm. And when it's living inside the mouth of a fish, it sucks its blood, and eventually its action causes the tongue to atrophy, and it just sits there, and it kind of takes the place of the tongue of the fish. So mm-hmm. it kind of becomes, like, the tongue of the fish in terms of, like, you know how the fish use it and stuff like that um, most people get freaked out about the tongue bite parasites but they don't know about other species in the family that do like I guess worse thing than that they actually go into <laughs> the body cavity of the fish there's this video that I tweeted about where someone um, caught a little leather jacket a little file fish which is about the size of your hand and when he got it he pulled out this you know this one these parasitic isopods inside it that's like relatively big comparing with the size of the fish and then as like, oh hang on a sec and then he pulled out another one <laughs> so there's like two of these big things and like if you look at the size in relation to how it is imagine imagine having something the size of like a pet bunny living inside <laughs> you well, no two pet bunnies living inside you that's kind of how big the parasite is in relation to the fish so often when people get freaked out ah the tongue by the parasite there was like even a bee horror movie that was made I think it's called The Bay that was like based <laughs> on the tongue by the parasite but what if tongue by the infect human beings and I think oh Charles Strauss also wrote um, a novel that featured a parasite some kind of eldritch parasite that is based very heavily on the tongue by the parasite mm. so I kind of you know see people getting really worked up over the tongue by the parasite and um, they, and it's like, oh man, you guys are such scrubs. <laughs> you have not seen the things that I've seen. Um, but I do find the tongue bite parasite really quite cute. So I recently did draw the tongue bite parasite as uh, one of my parasite monster girls, just because. You know. So well, we should talk about your art. We we mentioned that you're an artist, but we didn't really specify 
Or to do your, your do illustrations and yeah, I um well, it goes back to the Pisiac name. You know, I、mm. come up with things that are not found in reality,、mm. but they're taken from like components of reality. So the thing that I guess most people most people know me for now, well, now is in like the last twelve months or so. Uh, I I draw these like parasite monster girl, these kind of reimagining of、uh, my favorite parasites. They kind of basically in the body man of like, hey, you know, I keep saying that I'm a parasite fanboy. Let me show you how much of a fanboy. <laughs> I, this is how fanatically I like、so、parasites. These are like no, anime style, yeah, human kind of anime style characters. The origin story is a little bit embarrassing, so I won't <laughs> go too much into. I, I watched the show summer 2015 called Everyday Life of Monster Girls, and then that got into my head. I got infected. <laughs> by monster girls, and then、uh, which compelled me to draw parasites as monster girls,、um, but. Yeah,、uh, but that, most people know me from there. But like most of my art previously are、uh, these kind of cartoonish,、uh, what I call carrot creatures, like basically kind of cartoonish、uh, representation of animals that kind of carries across like the character really well. Like you can look at even though it's cartoonish, you can infer from the cartoon like things about this particular animal. And other stuff are like these speculative evolution animals, which are like okay.、Um, What, they're what I call evolution fan fiction.、Mm. It's where okay, what if the end Cretaceous mass extinction didn't happen? What if you know, like rats evolve into these like burrowing predators or whatever? This this kind of thing. This is like a very specific kind of speculative fiction niche,、mm. and you see this kind of thing pop up in speculative fiction as well, simply because you know. Hey, what? A, what? How? How's life like on an alien world and stuff? So I drew a lot of stuff like that. But the interesting thing I noticed with my art is that, you know, I went from these speculative、uh, evolution beasties that, you know, back when I was、uh, interviewed by, you know, sci artist、uh, Glenn Mello back in 2011, I was calling them kind of like visual hypotheses.、Mm. So those are like ideas that, you know, obviously they're not. Know, things that I can put in scientific journal, but they're like scientific base,、mm. and they're like ideas like, hey, what if you know, seeing how trilobites were so prolific, they pretty much filled the niche of what crustaceans do today, and there are many parasitic crustaceans.、Um, were there parasitic trilobites and how they would look like? And、mm. so I do drawing a kind of speculative representation of that. So I presented them as kind of these. What I call visual hypotheses.、Um, but at the same time, as I have moved away from drawing stuff like that, I'm still interested in it. So one of my, you know, first year unit, I do ask the student to come up with like a speculative zoology animal、mm. um, and get them to invent their own yeah, yeah. creature. Yeah, yeah, basically,、um, and, but do it in a kind of scientific. Inferring kind of a way using peer review literature. So as my art kind of moved away from that,、um, so I went from like kind of relatively self-serious speculative art to drawing like parasite monster girls. <laughs> But at the same time, I find as I as my art top my art subject become more and more silly, I actually found myself taking my art more seriously as well. Mm. So I've noticed there's like some significant change and development in terms of like how I view my art and how I do my art over the last eighteen, twelve to eighteen months or so.、Mm-hmm. Um, and people who know me would see like there's been significant change in my style and stuff like that. I try to challenge myself with each piece.、Um, whether it's noticeable or not to viewer, it's not you know it's not quite clear. But like 
um, I always try to do something different that I have not done before with each of the piece. Uh, just personally speaking, just as my development as an artist. Mm. So uh, yeah, the irony is that like as I move away from a you know more serious topic, I've actually taken my art more seriously um, and putting all this effort into drawing some very silly things. <laughs> so <laughs> very silly things, but done with a great amount of detail and like you said research yeah great amount of detail research and love so (laughs) i mean where do you find the time for all of this um well i like basically my routine is that like when i'm at work i'm like reading about papers and stuff like that and doing usual work stuff um i guess i have the luxury of like i don't have a family to take care of Mm. so i don't have to you know, take my like so so I can devote all my time and concentration on just you know doing all of this stuff. Mm. You know, when I'm at work, I'm thinking about science and research, and of course the usual administrative stuff that is involved with an academic. And my off time, my kind of brain switch gear, and I start thinking about these kind of stuff and you know doing drawings and stuff like that. So um, I guess I don't really like I, I, the the idea of like chilling out. Is a bit foreign to me. <laughs> I'm always like doing something. I'm mm. always like doing stuff, you know. And like anyone who follows me on Twitter would see that, like, you know, sometime I'll I'll post something that is like a bit of work in progress or whatever. I'm always constantly doing things and engaging things. And I guess you know it might sound a bit frantic for people who are not into it, but that's just I guess that that kind of jive better with the way that my brain works. It's always you know constantly mm. going and going and going. I feel like that's probably another thing that is shared between scientists and artists, this need to be productive and do something. Yeah, yeah. I I feel myself, I sit and watch TV and I start to feel guilty because I'm not actually creating or producing anything. Well, I remember, um, like, sitting in a movie theater and which film was a oh yeah i was watching alien covenant and um which was not a good film and i uh i remember watching it and like i was kind of getting bored by it so my brain actually went to because i was in the middle of drawing that tongue by the parasite monster girl um my brain actually went to like oh okay well i should arrange her limbs like this <laughs> like i wasn't even paying attention to what's really going on on the screen i was like completely distracted by that so if I find like when you see me on my like off time what is actually happening is that there's a lot of stuff a lot of shit going through my brain you don't see it on the surface so people just see me and go oh he's just standing there or like when I'm walking to work or I'm like waiting for a bus or whatever I'm just standing there and I'm not looking at my phone most Mm. people are like looking at the phone and stuff like that it's like no 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 there's enough going on like in my head mm. that I don't need distraction on my phone I'm just going to stare out into the distance and I'm seeing things that you guys don't see because I'm <laughs> thinking about things and you know arranging shapes and stuff like that all the time mm. so like my brain is like constantly engaged and that's why I also carry a little notebook with me so I might think of something and go oh I better write that down mm. um, so it might like so once again, this is also the reason why I don't provide people with advice. It's like, well, you need kind of like my brain in order to be <laughs> to do that kind of a stuff. You know, I won't necessarily recommend it for anyone else. Mm. Um, so once again, that's why I don't, I don't, I don't like giving advice beyond the most general and broad 
type of advice because、mm. it's like some of them are just like really specific towards like kind of the the specs that I have going on in my head.、Mm. So I find myself often distracted from you know science stuff by. Creative stuff. Is it easy for you to switch between work mode and、um, creative mode? It's relatively easy, simply because I kind of work into my workflow.、Mm. So, as a part of like being a scientist and stuff, I have to keep up with the literature,、mm. and that's where I discover you know posts like potential future posts for the blog. As I'm browsing through the literature, oh, this is an interesting paper. I'll、mm. come across it. If it's a paper that I'm not gonna. Blog about or whatever, I might tweet about it. If it's a kind of a quiet time on Twitter, I might save that paper and tweet about it some other time. So all the stuff that I do, the social media stuff, the art stuff, and stuff like that, they're all kind of、um, integrated in such a way that I can work it into what I'm doing. And with Paris like Monster Girl stuff, a lot of the papers. That I use for references, they would have been paper that are either in my archives or I would have come across anyway and stuff like that. So I opportunistically go, oh, I'm reading about this thing right now.、Mm. You know, I can use build that and integrate that into the art. So it's more the fact that、um, a lot of the stuff I do, I kind of integrate it into each other, so I can just slot them in. So if I'm reading about like burn migration in relation to parasites and stuff like that, I might come across something in there that、I、go, oh, this could be useful for. A post or my art or whatever else that、um, might happen to be happening at that moment.、Mm-hmm. I mean, it's great that you are in a place where you can do this stuff. I mean, I've heard stories of people at universities where they say, "No, you can't have a personal website." Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what would you like, do? I think that's really kind of restrictive for, especially for anyone who, especially in this day and age, that like, oh, you don't, you can't have like a personal profile and stuff. It's all really tightly controlled. Um, especially in terms of like science communication, because I think a lot of people probably know me from like doing science communication、mm. stuff. Because I tweet about science and I also blog about science in the form of that parasite blog.、Um, what I have found is that、uh, people have kind of moved away from the whole deficit model of science communication. That oh, there's not enough information out there. We need to put information out there for people to read.、Mm. But You know, like I said about using Twitter, there is only just so much that you can read.、Mm. So people want to like it's more simply because human beings being what we are,、um, people go more for like a particular personality. It's、mm. not so much that like they they might like particular topic, let's say parasites or invertebrates or whatever, but they want to kind of also see the take from a particular person that they. Like and feel a bit of rapport with and stuff like that. So part of it is also the reason why you have like certain, I guess you could say, science celebrities like Neil deGrasse Tyson or、mm. Bill Nye and stuff like that, which have really prominent positions in、um, public culture and popular media.、Um, but people want that kind of personal connection. They're more likely to.、Um, Understand a thing or be accepting of like some new scientific finding if it came from a person. It didn't just seem like it came, from, you know, just a press release.、Mm-hmm. They want that person's hot take on this thing. They want their take on that thing. That that now that also comes with the caveat of like, well, you know,、um, it might mean that people mistaken a person's subjectivity as kind of like objective view,、uh, but. 
know, at the same time, it's your responsibility as a science communicator to make it clear, like, okay, this is the part where it's my opinion, as opposed to this is the part where this is what the paper actually says. So mm-hmm. that's more on with communication skill, like knowing what the audience might be interested in, knowing how to convey information accurately without being it being too dry or boring. Um, and being clear about like where you sit, like just basically having disclaimers about like, okay, this is my opinion of a thing, mm-hmm. and this is what the paper actually say, and um, that's part of also being a good scientist as well. You know, I often find come across press release, a blog post, or even papers being cited where it's like. That's not what that paper said. <laughs> Often people just look at the abstract and like pick up the thing that they like about that mm. particular paper and then cite it. And then when you read the papers, oh no, it actually say like the very opposite of mm. what you like. I, I've have papers that are like that as well. I get cited by a paper and I see what context they use it in. It's like I did not. That's not what I meant. <laughs> what are you talking about? But hey, you cited me, so whatever. But um, yeah, so. You know, people, especially now, you know, when you look at how social media is like now, people look at a headline and that's it. They often don't even click through. Mm -hmm. So you need to be really succinct and kind of knowing how people are like. I think that's kind of an important part of, I guess, moving away from just being a scientist. If you want to be on social media as a science communicator, as kind of like a science ambassador, as a scientist who also can talk to the public, you gotta realize that the way that you talk to your peers in academia, um, it's almost a different language to how you talk to people who aren't in your profession. Mm-hmm. I mean, we were talking before about this podcast being very casual and long form. It's kind of a same idea because I got frustrated that science communication was always so either polished yeah. or just little snapshots where you cannot explore broad, yeah. complex uh, things. I mean, hopefully, with having long-form discussions, we're, we're meeting these personas and we're seeing these people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it really depends on, like, because the way it is now, um, it's very difficult to get people to sit down and read a thing. Mm. And this is not just like, oh, young people. These are, most people are like that. I see so many hot takes of, like, articles where people, you could tell they just read the title, literally. Oh, yeah, the number like, of times they say, oh, I read this thing on Facebook, when I didn't yeah. really, I just saw the title and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I understand that. And that's that. it. <laughs> and these days, with, like, clickbaity title, it's often, like, you know, you'll never believe what happened next. It's like, and then people will just make up their own, like, ideas about yeah. what it's actually about, <laughs> as opposed to what it's actually about. And I recently had a conversation about, um, on Twitter with some people, and also off Twitter with some people, about uh, coverage of uh, dinosaurs mm. media and how the reaction that people get are more likened to what I see in fandoms. Like mm. people like into Star Wars or Marvel or Star Trek or whatever, the reaction that they get when they go, oh, you know, um, there are some part of the Tyrannosaurus body might be scaly instead of feathery. Oh, Tyrannosaurus might not have been able to run. It could only walk at a very mm. fast pace, that kind of thing. People react to it in such a way that it's like as if you say, oh, you know, Captain America is shit. 
you know, <laughs> um, because people have like really vast. Like, I can go out there and I can have my hot take about how you know toxoplasma is not all that. It's not the masterful mind controller that people make it out to be, <laughs> and I won't have the same kind of reaction as some of like my colleagues who work in paleontology and go come out and say, oh, you know, Tyrannosaurus can't. Run fast, and people like, ah, what? You know, how could you say that and stuff like that? And like, um, like people, they have an emotional attachment to mm. dinosaurs. Dinosaurs have transcended being mere, I guess, prehistoric animals, like animals that once lived and scientists study into pop culture icons and figures. You know, Tyrannosaurus Rex isn't just. A carnival that lived like sixty-five to seventy million years ago. It is a pop culture icon. It's a pop culture artifact, and people mm. treat it like a celebrity or like their favorite comic book character. <laughs> and so, as a result, a lot of the discourse that I see in terms of like people talk about dinosaurs, especially well-known dinosaurs like Triceratops, Velociraptor, Spinosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, um, it more resembles like. The way people talk about like their favorite character or their favorite, you know, favorite pairings between each character. You know,、mm. if a writer wrote this character pairing up with this character, some fan, some corner of the fandom, but like, no, they don't belong <laughs> together. The OTP should be this or that. Like that's the kind of reaction that I see when people start talking about dinosaurs, and that also means that a lot of non-experts come in with their. Subjective preferences and dressing them up as being objective as well, and I guess that's kind of the double-edged sword in terms of science communication. You can write about a thing that's really popular and you can get a lot of eyeballs onto it.、Mm. At the same time, it also means that a lot of people are going to treat it not like a scientific debate. They're going to treat it like an they have actual invo- emotional investment into what you know that topic is, whether it's like how. Their picture of like how dinosaurs look like, or just anything relating to like popular dinosaurs, people、mm-hmm. get really, really、uh, go get really emotionally worked up about it.、Um, more so than I guess any other prehistoric animal. If there's some new discovery that found out, say, Dunkleosters actually you know have like fleshy fins or whatever. You're not going to see the same kind of reactions.、Mm-hmm. Like pe- people go like, "Oh, Tyrannosaurus probably can't run," and people go mad over Dunkleosters. Like, oh, what's Dunkleosters?、Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, part of me despairs at the way media is now, and the fact that opinions count、yeah. for so much, or the、um, fact that the number of clicks. Yeah, says something about how significant your work is. Do、yeah. you see、um, a way I, forward? I, I don't really see a way forward. If I see a way forward, I'll be like a much way smarter person than. <laughs> But、um, I think people have to be really careful about metrics because I know that for a while, I don't know if people are still like this now. But for a while,、um, everyone were really like onto this whole out metrics thing. You know,、um, and like, okay, yes, that does show kind of an impact of your work,、mm. but that's just like an incomplete picture. The same way that a Twitter account shows an incomplete picture of a person,、mm. its out metrics also show an incomplete picture of the societal impact of a particular paper. So, for example, there was a paper I remember very distinctly because people talk about its out metrics. It was about how basically it could be summed up as like bats engage in oral sex, <laughs> and you can imagine something like this. Of course, it would get a lot of press and like、uh, headlines and stuff like that. But if you look at that, its actual scientific value, it's very interesting 
But、um, in terms of like, okay, is this going to change the face of like, you know, research into animal reproduction or behaviors?、Eh, no, it's just another piece of the puzzle.、Mm. Um, it's just that certain papers and me tweeting about papers and stuff like that.、Um, I know that certain types of papers get more clicks and views and click-throughs and stuff like that than others,、mm. um, just because of the topic and the kind of you know whether it has a sexy headline, so to speak. So outmetrics is a good representation of like what gets clicks, but I like as for this actual societal impact of a paper. Like you know, you could have a paper that report on, say, a vaccine for the flu or whatever.、Um, you won't get you know, like really like、uh, it would get a big headline, but like people won't get worked up. About、mm. it, the same way as say a paper about how pterosaurs can't run, or a paper about bats engaging in oral sex.、Mm. You know, it doesn't get people as worked up over it, and it comes down to like, okay, well, how do you measure societal impact? Is it like societal change, or whether at that moment people get really worked up about it?、Um, you people, I I feel that. You know, with every single metrics that people come out with, it's like age index or impact factor or citation index or citation life. There's just so many of these metrics. Each of those metrics present、uh, kind of a slice of what a paper is.、Um, at the end of the day, if you want to know what that paper is about personally, go read the paper because you would have a different reaction to it as opposed to someone else. You know, someone would read a paper about like. Elephant tapeworms and go. Oh, okay, whatever. Elephants get tapeworm. Whereas、mm. me, go. Oh, this elephant tapeworm has got this life cycle that involves like a tiny little soil mite and blah blah blah. And then I end up writing a whole blog post about it. So everyone has their own personal reaction towards it,、uh, and that includes scientists as well.、Mm. Know, scientists are trained to be objective, of course, about their thing, but. Scientists are also people as well, so they have their own like preferences in、mm. terms of like what they're into and how they react to a particular piece of news and stuff like that.、Mm. Well, we've hardly talked about parasitology at all. <laughs> yeah, that's、uh, what happens with me. That's like that's like if you follow me on Twitter, that's what happens. Like, oh, <laughs> when's he going to talk about parasites? It's like, well, he mentioned parasites in passing, <laughs> but then he talked about a whole lot of this other drivel. So, well, we can, we can do a follow up podcast in a couple of weeks and pick up where we left off. Yeah, possibly. I mean, you know, this could be like Tommy talk about social media and stuff. <laughs> I mean, that is another thing that people know me for because of the blog, you know, science communication stuff. So this fits in with my 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 repertoire on <laughs> on social media. That,、mm. You know, I'm the guy who. You know, have hot takes about toxoplasma. So, <laughs> so if people aren't already following you online, you're on Twitter. Yes, at the Episiarch. Yep. So it's the underscore Episiarch. So e- Episiarch is spelled E P I S I A R C H. Yes. And also the Parasite of the Day blog, which、uh, I think is dailyparasite.blogspot.com.、Mm. So you can see most of my work on there. And through those, you might find links to like my other stuff as well. I think I have a few links on my Twitter profile. So, if you want to see my stuff,、um, yeah, go on there, and then you might inadvertently run into my scientific papers through a few random links.、Um, I think that's probably like one of the things like on on Twitter. I don't really、um, like. I know that a lot of academics often have their like. 
well, credentials, not so much credentials, but their positions and institutional affiliation on their Twitter bio, which mm. is fine. You know, they do their thing. Uh, I, I don't. I, if you look at my Twitter bio, there is like no indication of like, you know, me being an academic or me being affiliated with a particular institution. And people just instantly discover that mm. as they, you know, see my tweet and stuff. You're your own empire. <laughs> I don't know about calling it an empire. It's more like the weird guy in the corner that's like juggling or something like that. Um, can you juggle? No, I can't. I can oh. juggle a whole lot of like, you know, screens and stuff like that at the same time. I can juggle things digitally, but not really physically. So that could be said about a lot of things as well. Yeah. All right, well, let's do this again sometime. Sounds good. And follow it up. All right, well, thanks so much for coming on. All right, thanks and for having me on. Thank you guys for listening. Again, you can follow in situ Science on Twitter, the handle at Institute Science. We're on Facebook. We've got InstituteScience.com. Make sure you subscribe. Uh, leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.